If you have trouble breathing, respiratory therapists can do you a world of good. And recognizing the importance of respiratory therapy and the people who provide it, the Veterans Health Administration's Maryland Healthcare System has given its respiratory therapists a career boost. Now they've got a pathway to add, quote, advanced practice to their titles. My next guest spearheaded that effort. He's the chief of respiratory therapy for VA in Maryland, Daniel Witt. Mr. Witt, good to have you on. Thanks a lot, Tom. I appreciate you having me. And just briefly, what does a respiratory therapist actually do? A respiratory therapist is an allied health professional that's skilled in uh, treatment and management of patients with lung disease, lung disorders. So we're there at the bedside. We're there uh, doing birth. We're there doing deliveries, high-risk delivery, or extreme cases where patients are experiencing difficulty breathing or respiratory failure. We're there to help support patients through those challenging times. So the difficulty breathing could be the result of any number of issues. And for veterans, burn pit exposure, for example, would be a prime case of where one of the effects would be difficulty breathing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we've seen that, right? So we've seen a lot of our people, our post-deployment servicemen and women who've been exposed to toxic exposure or burn pits come back with pulmonary challenges and, and health issues associated with that. So respiratory therapists are real important in helping to diagnose and manage and treat those conditions. And if someone has lungs that just don't work as well as they should, there are ways you can actually get more oxygen into the system somehow? If you're experiencing what we call respiratory failure, hypoxic respiratory failure, naturally the first thing you'll probably get prescribed is oxygen, supplemental oxygen that helps support vital functions of the body. And this could be progressive. You can go from needing oxygen support to needing mechanical ventilation to being on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. So respiratory therapists are there with those individuals each step of the way. Got it. Now, at the Maryland VA Health Center, there is now a new title for calling someone advanced in this effort. Tell us the background. What's the purpose here? Right. So we're talking about the advanced practice respiratory therapist. And this individual is an advanced practice provider uh, that has received the uh, requisite academic and clinical education to diagnose, manage, and treat adult pediatric and neonatal patients with cardiopulmonary diseases or disorders. This happens under the supervision of a licensed physician, and they are deeply involved with the care and the management of patients. And this includes managing medications, prescribing therapies, prescribing medication, and other diagnostic tests to track and care for uh, patients with advanced to chronic pulmonary diseases. It sounds like that you can do like 85% of what a doctor could do just on that pulmonary front. Absolutely. You know, and I'm sure some of our uh, doctor colleagues, our physician colleagues would agree that there is certainly a need for this type of specialized care, if you will. You know, for some time, respiratory therapists have been considered physician assistants in the sense that we support and we work under licensed physicians in their care and their treatment of their patients. Sure. And by the way, within the VA system, are respiratory therapists Title 38 employees? They are hybrid Title 38 employees within the VA. And what does that mean, hybrid? It's a bit of a combination between a Title 5 employee and a Title 38 employee. So Title 38 employees are your physicians and your nurses. The hybrid 38s are typically your respiratory therapists, your perfusionists, your pharmacists, kind of like the, <laughs> I don't want to say the best of both worlds, but certain administrative tasks that respiratory therapists have a function in the Title V capacity, along with more of the kind of as it relates to benefits, things sure. that we see uh, that Title 38 counterparts have. 
And do you get the pay flexibilities that are available under Title 38 relative to, say, the GS system under Title V? We do have some mechanisms to request a special salary rate. However, our pay structure looks a little bit different than our Title 38 counterparts. And that's something that uh, hopefully, you know, we'll work towards as an agency uh, and we'll see some improvement there to make us a lot more competitive. Uh, but there are some mechanisms to help on the pay front. We're speaking with Daniel Witt. He is Chief of Respiratory Therapy for the VA Maryland Healthcare System. And let's talk about the genesis of this new advanced care idea, the advanced practice respiratory therapist. This generated, in some sense, outside of the VA system in some private associations. Absolutely. So for me, the APRT concept was introduced a little bit later in my career. However, the American Association for Respiratory Care and the National Board for Respiratory Care, along with COARC, have been working on the APRT concept and effort for some time. It wasn't until about November of 2022 when the network had asked, uh, and the network being Vision 5, had asked to submit joint proposals from the VA, the VHA, and the DOD. I saw this as an opportunity to introduce the APRT concept to my vision lead, whom in which uh, at that time expressed to me if this was something that I wanted to pilot, I could certainly try it at the Baltimore VA Medical Center, bring back the data that shows that this is a, a new emerging trend in best practices, and that we could look to replicate that throughout the VA. So that's what we did. So we sent up a resource request for individual to occupy this position. We built and created an announcement. Uh, that announcement went out for solicitation, and we did make a selection for an advanced practice respiratory therapist who has uh, officially started in her new role last week, actually. So we're, we're excited about that here. And so this is something you hope will replicate throughout the 167-odd VA medical centers throughout the country eventually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of our strategic goals is to refine and replicate this. So as we build and work towards really looking at the, the scope of practice of this advanced practice provider, we're going to refine that as the position evolves. And then again, we, we look to replicate that. We identified a few clinical areas where we see, we definitely see a need for an advanced practice respiratory therapist to help support pulmonary health. Right. And it's also, I imagine, a good way to retain good people who would, you know, jump over to Johns Hopkins or, you know, all these mm -hmm. big cities have great hospitals that, you know, make pay a little better. But a lot of people driven by the mission in VA then would yeah. be incentivized to stay to get that advanced level of title. Absolutely, Tom. And it's interesting you brought that up because one of the other, I guess, strategic endpoints, if you will, would be to establish uh, a relationship or a collaboration through the Office of Academic Affiliations to allow respiratory therapists that are already within the VHA to move up and advance academically to achieve the APRT and bring those services back to the VA. And we definitely see that that's a win-win. That's a win for our veterans and it's a win for our profession. And by the way, how did you come to your respiratory practice experience and to the VA? Oh, wow. You know, it's, it's interesting that I was an artilleryman down in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, but I saw interest in being, at the time, they were called inhalation therapists or respiratory therapists, the 91 Victor. I wanted to go to Fort Sam Houston for training. I wasn't able to really achieve that. So when I was discharged, I uh, pursued that career field outside of the VA. I trained at University of Maryland Medical Center for some time, uh, became credentialed in adult critical care, 
and uh, neonatal pediatric, as well as ECMO. And I, you know, I thought I, you know, I saw an opening here at the Baltimore VA and decided, hey, look, this is probably a good opportunity for me. So I put my name in the hat and uh, I was selected. So a Army artillery man that became a VA respiratory therapist. Yeah, <laughs> quite a career change, huh? Well, we'll take it. And I imagine, too, that there must be the sense that in helping people breathe, whether it's an infant, because, you know, premature babies, that's their issue, is respiratory in many ways. And then those that might have had some exposure or maybe they smoked, whatever the case might be. But when you administer respiratory therapy, you must get the sense you're helping with the most essential life function, which is the ability to breathe. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's very fulfilling. A lot of times people may or may not uh, take breathing for granted. Certainly when you can help someone with that challenge of, of struggling to breathe or they find themselves in a situation where they are in poor pulmonary health or respiratory failure, being able to swoop in, if you will, and uh, provide those supportive services and especially care, it means a lot to them. And it certainly is, is a proud moment as a, as a practitioner to be able to do that. Not all stories are success stories, obviously, uh, but you know, breathing is important. Like you stated, it's a life-sustaining function, and it's something that, you know, it's great to be able to support that. Daniel Witt is Chief of Respiratory Therapy for the VA Maryland Healthcare System. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. No problem. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Breathe in the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama 
And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that 
I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.